What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. John Callis is a writer, director, and producer with an extensive list of projects including his six novels, the television show Bobby's World, the film No Solicitors, and much more. His career began in the mid-70s and offered John a creative outlet after a very tumultuous childhood. From losing his father at a young age to surviving highly abusive school environments, John's narrative is a true testament of tribulations after trials. He joins us today to share all that came next for him after publicly disclosing his difficult childhood and releasing a memoir that was 50 years in the making. My loved ones would describe me as a very loyal father, dedicated to his children, will do anything for his friends, is very open and honest, there's no hidden agenda, but there are some rules with him and boundaries that you don't cross. You don't ever disrespect my family or hurt them. You don't lie to me and you don't cheat or steal. Any of those will trigger me to saying, we're done. I don't believe in second chances on some things because some things I don't believe require a second chance. Overall, they would say that if John says something, you can bet that it'll happen or he will do what he says he will do. I'm a 40-year writer, director, producer, veteran in Hollywood that has eight award-winning productions, including an Emmy nomination. It's been a wonderful career that hasn't always been easy. Yes, there were a lot of fun times, but there were a lot of hard times too. But as a filmmaker, I think that the joy for me has always been to tell stories and watch the audience respond. Through my characters, I get to say things that have some message in a sense. And as a result of that, I wound up writing six novels as well. So <laughs> I try to keep busy. I started looking back at my own life. I tried to unravel where everything began because if you're going to go in search of your own heart and healing, you've got to know the beginning. For me, it was literally 10 days after my third birthday, my dad died. And I felt abandoned. I felt really lost. My hero was gone. The person that I loved was gone. I gave up religion. I started acting out. I became a real problem child. I was just completely distraught. I started having dreams of falling in a spiral and I couldn't get out of it. I'd wake up sweating. I didn't want to go back to sleep. And it was compounded every day by the fact that I lost my dad. So that was the start of my traumas. And it went from there. I grew up in a very rough neighborhood. It was Jersey City back in the early, early 50s. If you didn't have street sense, you were going to get squashed. It was a very impoverished neighborhood. We all got into fights together. We would sit up these cardboard boxes and throw mud pies at each other. Eventually, rocks would get thrown, and it got bloody at times. I had so much anger and so much fear of the unknown. 
My mother, unfortunately, was pregnant with a fourth kid and miscarried at the funeral. So there she is with no visible means of support, no husband, three mouths to feed, rent to pay, and no job. So it was not a real great beginning. By the time I was 12, my mother had found a husband, basically. At that time, I had been getting into so much trouble with the police. I went to a party with a friend who I asked him to borrow his parents' car to take this girl home who was going to be late and grounded forever. And when I drove back, the police were all over the place and the parents were there. And the kid was telling the police and his parents that I stole the car, which I didn't. So that wound me up in jail overnight until my parents got me. The courts had given my parents a decision. Either they were going to send me to reform school or I would have to be shipped off to military school. My mother drove me from New Jersey to New York City, put me on a train by myself at 12 years old to go from New York City to Virginia to a military school. I get on the train. I'm scared to death. Now I'm feeling double abandonment. First, my father dies and abandoned me. Now my mother is abandoning me. From my little boy's perspective, I looked at that as complete betrayal. She hated me. She didn't love me. She wanted to get rid of me to hang out with her new husband. The train started pulling out. She turned away and started walking away. And I just looked at her wishing she would just come and get me off the train and bring me home. It wasn't until I was an adult, we had a little chat, my mom and I, that I realized what was going on. I told her, I said, why did you abandon me? How could you turn away from your son? And she said, John, honest to God, the reason I turned away is I was crying. I couldn't stand the fact that I was sending my little baby at 12 years old to a military school. Had I not turned away, I probably would have pulled you off the train. The first night we arrived at military school, nobody had told me how to behave, what I had to do, what was expected. So the first night there, I got knocked out three times. That was the beginning of my military school experience. I was in military school for three years, and that was enough to drive anyone completely, utterly insane. They disciplined me to the point where wire hangers, broken broomsticks over my back. I mean, they were out to hurt me. Sometimes the old cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, is applicable. I think it's important to acknowledge, although I had the worst three years of my life at military school, there were cadets that were thrilled to be there. Part of the kids were there because they wanted to have military careers, go to Annapolis, West Point, and all that. And then there was the ruffians like myself who were there because of discipline problems and really didn't want to be there. Personally, without any guidance, without anybody telling me what to do, I immediately got into trouble, got into fights. Their mode of operandum was to break me and make me a military man. I had set a school record the first three months for the most demerits that any cadet ever had. That would take away one hour of free time for each demerit. So on Saturday, you had maybe six or seven hours that you got to go down to town and watch a movie, go to a soda shop. I was denied that because instead of seven hours of freedom, I had seven hours of marching or exercise or whatever they deemed they wanted to do, like run around a track for two hours. There were times where I tried to resist it and I got more demerits. It just kept piling up. It got to the point where I was starting to lose it. And then the headmaster had this little group that he always took camping. And I was invited to go along because he thought I could use some friends. Well, his idea of friends and my idea of friends are quite different. I witnessed something that evening with he and another one of the younger cadets. I zipped my bag up around my head and said, I got to get out of here. I can't do this. That was kind of a second double whammy on my sexual assault of life and confusion. Because when I was very young, before I was sent away to military school, I was raped basically by my sister's friend. 
Eventually, I got to go from the junior school, which is down the hill, to the senior school, which is up the hill, where all the big boys hang out. By this time, I had literally run away from school six times. I had called my mother on each of the six occasions that I ran away from school, and she said, come on, you're exaggerating, they're not hitting you. On the sixth time, when I was in the headmaster's office getting ready to be punished with a paddle over my bare butt, I looked at him and said, I don't get this. How can my mother allow you to do this? He sat me down and he pulled out a letter and he said, why don't you read this? Basically, it was a consent letter that said, if you send your son to this school, that you must agree to us disciplining him in any way we feel fit in military standards. Now, I don't believe military standards says you can beat the hell out of somebody for discipline reasons. This kind of abuse just was wrong. And so I had to sit there reading this letter agreed to by my mother that they could discipline me in any way they saw fit. I just lost any ounce of hope I ever had left. It was like somebody blew out the last flame. It was gone. I was just a shell of a person at that point. One day in our platoon lineup for breakfast, this kid walks in and stands in the squad next to me. He has long hair and everyone in the school is laughing at him. And I was curious. At that time, the Beatles were starting to come out. People weren't familiar with people with long hair. That night, I knocked on his door and I started talking to him. He told me all about the peace movement and what was going on on the outside. I had a game plan of running away together. He and I made an agreement that we would run away. He knew where we could go from Virginia to San Francisco. And I thought, cool. So the next morning I get up, I open my door, which had an open form. If you can imagine a prison, but without the bars. And as I walk out, I look up and he's swinging by his neck from the balcony. I heard enough to suggest that it may not have been suicide, but I cannot confirm. So I'm not going to even begin to touch that. But I felt, once again, the abandonment issue came in. It just felt like every time I turned around, somebody in my life was either dying, abandoning me, or something that continued the trauma to be implanted deeper and deeper into the heart. What it also did for me is it gave me a fear of making a close friend. I was afraid to get close to anyone because I was afraid they were going to die or leave me. That took a long time in life to get over before I could actually have a friend come into my life again. Mid-60s, I went to my parents and said, here's the deal. If you even think of sending me back to that school, I'm going to jump off the train. You'll never see me again, and that'll be the end of us. So they decided to send me to a private school instead. The initial response was, oh, great. I'm at a military school. I don't have to wear this uniform anymore. Although I was told I would have to wear a tie and a blazer, I didn't care about that because it was civilian clothes. And on the weekends and after school, you can get in your dungarees. I thought, man, I'm going to have a great time here. First day in private school, I'm sitting in the little lounge that we all had before breakfast, and this six foot five guy walks up to me. He looks at me and says, hey, are you the kid from military school? I put my head down, and my only thought was, oh, sweet Jesus, this isn't going to start again, is it? I looked up, and I said, yeah, I went to military school. He goes, well, did they teach you how to kill there? And I'm thinking, why would you ask a question so stupid like this? I said to him, look, it's not a skill that I'm proud of. I don't want any trouble. I'm past all of that. I don't want to even think about it. He goes, stand up. I want you to show me how you could kill me. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm into peace. He wouldn't leave me alone for three years. I went to the headmaster all the time and asked him to please tell him to stop bugging me. He would spit on me. He would push me. He was trying to get me to fight with him, and I just wouldn't do it. And it took three years before it finally happened. Fifteen years old, I was in that private school, and I had had it. 
I wanted all the pain to stop. I wanted to heal. I didn't want to go through this anymore. So I decided one night that this was the night it would end. And I walked down to the end of the dock in front of this giant lake that was partially frozen. I said, it stops now. And I jumped in. When I got underwater and the water rushed into my lungs, a thought hit me that I didn't want to die. There's got to be something better. And I jumped out, sat on the dock freezing for a long time, and then went and got warmed up and everything. The next day, I guess it got around campus what I had done, and the soccer coach came to me and said, hey, why don't you try out for soccer? I said, coach, thanks, but I don't play sports. He goes, why? Didn't your dad and you go out and play baseball and stuff? I just put my head down and he knew something was up. After a while, he got the whole story out of me. He said, would you allow me to help you play soccer? I said, why would you do that? I don't even know you. He says, because I think there's something there that you'll enjoy. And so I got on the soccer field. It turned out I was a really good defenseman because you had an opportunity to run around and get a lot of aggression out. So after that, the wrestling coach saw that and he came to me, he says, I'd like you to wrestle. I said, uh, no. He says, I'm your chemistry teacher. Wouldn't you like an A? I said, that sounds like blackmail. <laughs> he said, it is. Okay, you got a sense of humor, I'll go. I became undefeated in wrestling in the tri-state area. Sports gave me an outlet to express my anger, my competition, which actually was one of the minor little flames that lit. I started building, without me even knowing about it, some confidence in myself. I was achieving something, which I didn't realize was part of recovery. Through all of this, my math teacher found out about my plight, and he pulled me in his office and he said, I understand that people have opinions. There are good thoughts and bad thoughts, and it's all like everyone's opinion, right? I said, yeah. He says, in math, you don't have opinions. You have only facts, and nobody can argue those facts. Something in my brain just went click, and I said, wow, I found something that I don't have to be afraid of. If I put the numbers in the right order, if I do the multiplications correctly, if I do this and that, it comes out, the answer is indisputable. He gave me yet another spark that I didn't even realize was in there. All these mentors started coming into my life and I didn't even know what a mentor was or that I was even being affected by it. But looking back as an adult, I can start to piece together where those little sparks started triggering something to ignite the fuse for me to move forward with my life. When I got to college, I started as a chemistry major because of the fact that my father had died of cancer. I was determined to find a cure for it, but my teacher soon realized that I was in the wrong study area and he saw something creative in me. After a couple of semesters of chemistry, my chemistry teacher took me for a walk and said, I need to talk to you. You're a straight A student in chemistry. You do three hour labs in 45 minutes. He goes, but you're not a chemist. You're an artist and you need to find yourself. He says, you're out of my class. I'm going to tell the dean you are no longer in my class and you need to find another class. I sat on the grass in the quad, completely confused, going, I really don't know what's going on with my life. And this friend of mine, Liz, sits next to me and says, what's up? I told her, and she started laughing. She goes, forget him. I need some help. Can you help me? So she brings me over this room and I walk in and there are all these people on a stage. And I'm handed a script. I said, what's this? And said, your part is this. You just read that. So I get up on stage and I'm starting to read. The director gives me a little direction. He goes, ooh, that was really good what you did. Now I need a little bit more of this. About an hour in, I said, hey, listen, I've got to go do my homework. It's getting late. And he goes, you can't leave a rehearsal. I looked at Liz, who had a big smile on her face. I said, you little snake are you. And then the whole cast came around me, said, congratulations on the part. You're going to be really good. And it just felt like I found something finally. I found a group of people that worked for a creative endeavor, which was really cool, which I'd never experienced. 
And by the second year, I wrote my first play, presented it to the parent-teacher weekend, which was very successful. After being in the theater at my first college, it was during the Kent State era, and revolution was breaking out. On May 4th, 1970, the Ohio National Guard shot at a group of anti-war protesters on the Kent State University campus. They killed four and wounded nine unarmed students protesting the Vietnam War. It was the first time a student was killed in an anti-war gathering in United States history. Countrywide protests unfolded as a result, which forced the temporary closure of colleges and universities across the country. Everything was going crazy. All the schools closed down. So I went back to New Jersey and went to a guidance counselor in New York to find another school. He found one in Colorado and said, do you want to go to Colorado? They have a program that I think you'll really enjoy. It's a program called the University Without Walls. That's a program where kids who know what they want to do in life have the guidance of the teachers, but they don't go to classes anymore. You structure your course curriculum with them. But you have to go to class for six months first, and then they'll assess that curriculum. I get to school in Colorado a couple of weeks early. The head of the department, Judith, comes up to me and says, can I talk to you for a minute? I want you to meet this guy, Joey Favre. He's from New York. He's an Italian guy that has a theater in Denver that he's got to rebuild. He can really use the help. Now, I got to be honest with you, he has never, ever taken a student because he's cranky that way. So she set up a meeting. Joey is introduced to me and goes, look, kid, I'm going to just cut this meeting really short. I don't do interns because I'm not going to come and do the reports and listen to the academic crap. I just don't think it's going to work. I said, you're lost, not mine, pal. I turn around, I start walking away. He goes, wait a minute, what does that mean? I said, look at this place. You need my help more than I need your help. And Judith put her hands over her eyes. He said, yeah, where are you from? I said, Jersey, where are you from? He goes, New York. I said, I can tell with your attitude. I'm here as a volunteer and you're being ungrateful. He goes, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to take a chance on you. I said, I'll do it under one condition. You have to say, I'm sorry. And he looks at Judith and goes, is this kid for real? And he looks, he goes, I'm sorry. I said, no, look, you're a director in theater. I'd like to see some more truth and empathy in your performance here. And he started laughing. He gave me a hug. He says, all right, we're going to work well together. I did lighting for him. I was an actor for him. He hooked me up with the Denver Lyric Opera, where I started playing music with them. That launched me into a really solid career towards theater. When I finally got to my master's degree at Occidental College, I was taking master's in theater arts as a director. I took a subclass with a very famous documentary filmmaker named Chick Strand. One of her requirements in the film class was to make a little eight millimeter film. So I went out and I filmed a whole bunch of stuff, put a soundtrack to it, and I did all the editing. It actually was about life in California. It wasn't dialogue, it was all music and visuals. So you could see a woman running down the beach, you can see flowers growing, you could see people taking hikes on bikes, the Venice scene, everything imaginable all in this little film. She asked me to stay after class. She said, John, I know you want to act, and I'm sure you're good at it, but you've got a really good eye. You should be either a director or a director of photography. And so she encouraged me to start looking in that direction. I think that's what kind of triggered me to making the transition from theater into more of a film-based background. When I got to my master's degree, I was sitting in a classroom 
And the kids started picking on me in a sense, saying, well, you can't answer that question. You're a professional. You did professional theater in Denver. I mean, you got to know that. I said, listen, let me tell you bonehead something right now. I am starting to lose my patience with things like this. I said, if I knew everything, I wouldn't be in this class trying to learn just like you. So you guys need to back off and leave me alone. So the head of the department heard about it, pulled me into his office. He said, you're having a hard time here, aren't you? He decided to take me under his wing. He was the only teacher I had in my master's degree. He got me through the theater thing and got me my master's degree. And we had a great time doing that. Obviously, mentors were a resource for grit and tenacity and that hope that you harvested. What other tools or resources did you end up utilizing or creating for yourself? That's an interesting question about other tools. When I got to Colorado, a woman said, have you ever been in the mountains? I said, no, I've never even seen the mountains other than from this view, but they look beautiful. She took me up to a little mountain town called Evergreen. It's about a little over 8,000 feet tall. It was stunning. It had a beautiful lake and this little road that went for six miles. She took me to a cabin and there were a bunch of kids there, all long hair. My hair was starting to grow out by that time. They welcomed me as if I was their brother. I felt so at ease with them. Two weeks later, one of the kids in the group said, hey, John, Mr. Hurley's renting a cabin. You want to look at it? I said, heck yeah. So we drove up to the cabin. It was literally in this little cul-de-sac in amongst 100-foot ponderosas. The road ended right where my cabin was, and it turned into the National Forest. So I was at the edge of civilization. I started living in the mountains. A few other people moved in next door to me, and I met a man named Mark O'Brien. He had left Fordham University uh, studying law because he finally said, I'm sick of society. I just want to go live in the mountains. I didn't know it at the time, but he was incredibly spiritually evolved. One night over chess, he was teaching me how to play chess. He got my whole story out of me again. He started teaching me life on a chessboard. And he said, every move I make or you make is a counter move. And you have to look at what reason your opponent made that move. There are times where I might make a move and you might think you're getting a big piece. So you take that piece. Now, what I've strategized is I'm willing to give up something to gain something more important. Then he started teaching me how to meditate. He and I talked spiritually for a long time. And finally, one night he said, John, I have to ask you a question. You've always told me that you've always wanted to forgive this person and forgive that person for all the trauma that you had dumped on you. Forget about forgiving them. He says, you can't forgive them until you do the most important step in your life. You have got to learn to forgive yourself. When I was first realizing I had some serious issues that I couldn't get my head on top of, I went to see a therapist. I was nervous because I'd never been to a therapist. And I told him a little bit about my background. He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write two or three pages about your background, what happened to you, a little bit about your military school, just so I can get a better understanding. So I did it, handed it to him the next time. The third time I walked in, he burst out crying and hugged me. And he said, I've been a therapist a long time. I have no idea how you got through this. There's just no way you could have done this on your own. I said, well, it seemed like it was on my own, but there were a lot of people that were there pushing me along the way. After the therapist had me write those few pages, I discovered another therapist that said, you should look at this book called The Artist's Way. And the idea of the book was to write three pages every day for 12 weeks. So I started doing that. One morning, I didn't have anything to write. And I said, well, I'm looking out my window. It's starting to drizzle. And I looked up and three pages had gone by. So instead of 12 weeks, it turned into 12 months. I wrote volumes of pages. We're talking probably 50 years ago. To this day, I have never read everything, but I soon realized it was the genesis of when the rain stops. 
Honestly, about 50 years ago is when I started writing this book. I was pretty much trying to unravel emotions in my life. Writing for 12 weeks, it started feeling like there was something there. I started sharing a little bit with my wife and my therapist and my friend who's a brilliant writer. I decided to put more of a timeline together. So I created a character, and forgive me, I don't remember the name of the character, I'll call him Ed for now. And I handed it to David and my wife. They both read it and they both came back with the same comment. They were yelling at me. You're making this story about Ed. Nobody's going to believe this stuff. This is all true, right? And I said, every last word of it. Then it's got to be about you. Otherwise, people will not resonate that it's a personal story and they're not going to get the cathartic value for themselves out of it unless you show them that you went through it and survived. That was incredibly difficult because I sat in my office reading it a bit and I was thinking, I'm scared to death to tell everyone this. What if people laugh at me? It really went through my head hard. And I said, okay, I got to calm down here. Yes, that's a possibility, but you haven't released it yet. So there's still time. Let's just take a deep breath. I was sitting trying to come up with a theme. As a filmmaker, a theme, especially as a writer, screenwriter, you have to look at theme as a very important part of any work. I kept thinking to myself, what's the theme in this book besides healing and recovery? I said, all right, well, it's about your heart. It hurts. It just feels like it's always raining. Everything's pouring into my heart. And I went, well, if it's raining emotions into your heart and trauma, what happens when it stops? As soon as I said that, I said, when the rain stops. That's the title of my book. That's when I went back and did a little rewriting. And I put in there references, the rain was pouring into my heart and it was hurting. I found the theme to be able to make the title of the book. And then I had all sorts of design covers for it. I just made it a very simple, peaceful sunset. Like you've come to the completion and it's colorful and everything. And I look, took one look and I fell in love with it. That's how the genesis and the name of the book came about. I wrote the whole story. I read it and I thought, you know, my mother comes off like a really bad person at the beginning and I don't want people to feel like hating her because she turned out to be the best thing that ever happened in my life. Then at three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and said, two voices. I said, all right, I'll tell the story from my three-year-old all the way to my X amount of year old. Each section, I'm going to put a little separate section in gray of the adult looking back and explaining that my perception of reality there wasn't what the truth was, especially about my mother. I mean, she made the hardest decision in her life. If it was a different time and there was therapy and we had the money to do that, maybe we could have skipped the military school and some of the abuse and abandonment, but life unfolded the way it did. So that's when I wrote the two voices. My wife and editor and friend looked at it and they said, now this is a book. This is powerful stuff. One of the feedbacks, I had reached out to a friend of mine on Facebook who does book reviews. And I said, would you mind looking this over and just giving me your opinion? I don't want you to write a review in case you hate it or something. Two or three weeks later, I get an email from his wife. He said, we sat down and read your book over the weekend aloud to each other. I want you to know he's done a lot of reviews on books and has been touched deeply by many, but I've never seen him as touched by a book as yours to the point where he walked over to the phone and dialed his mother who he hadn't spoken to in 10 years. And now she's back in his life. And I thought, wow, I could not have had a better compliment on a book in my life. I agree. It was incredibly powerful. I actually really appreciated the way you expressed the duality of your feelings too. 
I think it was extremely healing as an abuse survivor myself to be gifted both your retrospective perspective and then your current perspective. I loved knowing that you have cultivated this relationship with your mom. And I love navigating those pieces of your life knowing that too. I do want to speak to the honesty of your journey. It really is important to share these things that you thought and also your mom's actions that might be questioned because your mom trusted in the court system. And it's really important to talk about these things because parents are groomed all the time. She signed something and she didn't know what she was signing inherently, but that's how abusive and manipulative the institution was. Had you ever told her that you were writing a book? I did. She laughed and she goes, John, you can't even write me a letter. How are you going to write a book? And we both laughed about it. I said, Mom, this is my fifth book. She goes, yeah, okay. I read the other ones. I like them. Keep writing. First book I ever wrote was called Secrets. It's a journey from Nazi Germany through time into present day and how some of the things that started in Nazi Germany still exist today. And then it turns into kind of a James Bond adventure. The more I thought about it after writing it, it was a need to have my father still alive and send him on a mission as a hero. So the character's name in the book, Gus, was my father's name. I honored him that way. I wrote No Solicitor's novel that I turned into a script that I wrote, directed, and produced a film starring Eric Roberts, who was an Academy Award nominee, that's still in release in Tubi and all sorts of other places worldwide. Then I wrote a story based on my wife and my love of Christmas. We built a Dickens village. We started out with a couple of buildings on the floor, and then it grew to a little platform, and it grew and grew and grew. And now we're known as one of the largest scale builders at this scale in the world. It takes us nine weeks to build it and about two weeks to put it all away. We did hand carved mountains. We have train. We have gondola. We have skiers. We got all 84 Dickens village pieces, all sorts of people, and over 800 trees. About 10 years ago, I shot 60 hours of video as we built the village. We compressed it down to about nine minutes and it just zips through. And it shows the living room, us tearing it down, building the platform and building the whole village. Every village since 1990 has been different. Every time it's a different layout. One night I was in there playing with my train and listening to all the little village people talking. And I started having this fantasy. So I wrote this book called Christmas Voices. It's a cross between A Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol. And I just finished my sixth novel called The Myth. What role do you feel film and television play in the way society relates to victims at large? If you think about how we grew up, I remember watching on TV where the news would say, a woman got in a car accident and she was rushed to the hospital. And everyone went, oh my God. Now it's like there was a mass shooting today and nine kids got killed and four teachers. Oh, that's a shame. What else is on TV? People are getting really numb to this, which is not good. We can't do that. We have to stay focused on this. I think we have to start by understanding that, unfortunately, Hollywood in film, TV, and video games has normalized violence. It's something that we really have to look at because it's influencing our kids. Today, with all these blockbusters that show the protagonist solving problems by using guns and violence is not setting good examples for us. We really need to find other ways to do that. The argument that guns and violence sell better than anything else is nonsense because Titanic brought in $2.2 billion domestically alone. We've got to start finding ways to educate the studios, to re-educate the public, and to make sure that our parents are educated that by the time the kids leave the house, 
they understand that what they're watching is make-believe and that we don't do that in real life. If we can instill that, that'll help unnormalize gun violence in films and video games. I appreciate that perspective, and I think that's incredibly important to talk about. What do you wish everyone knew about healing after abuse or surviving abuse? It's such a blunt reality, but this cliche that's become ubiquitous of you are not alone. Let me tell you, when I was depressed and somebody said that to me, first thought in my mind is you have no idea what you're talking about and you don't know who I am. The industry of mental health right now, I think, is kind of slipping a little bit with that ubiquitous term. What they have to understand is that people that are depressed aren't all those people that are just sitting in a corner cowering with a towel over the head. They may be in their room just playing video games or just isolating themselves in what I've termed the comfort zone. They found a place that's comfortable. Nobody's going to hurt their feelings. Nobody can trigger them and they isolate themselves. Now they feel safe, but it's also the most dangerous place because it's the hardest place to come out of. I think there's no one shoe that fits all in terms of recovery, but a three-step process for your listeners to consider using. It's called uncover, discover, and recover. And we've covered this in our conversation. You uncover the difficult situation you're currently facing. Once you identify what triggered you, you discover whether or not your perception of the truth was right, or is there an alternative perception of the truth? You recover by taking the necessary steps to move yourself forward. For me, the Uncover, Discover, Recover gave me a tool to write down everything that I was upset about. Who triggered me? What triggered me? How I let it trigger me? And then I would take one at a time and I would say, how much energy do I want to put towards that in my life? Growing up, I came from a generation where kids were seen and not heard. If you cried, your mother would say, wipe those tears away. I'll give you something to cry about. Big boys don't cry. Suck it up. Move on. And it's really confusing for men. Men stop talking about their feelings and emotions and we bury it. And it comes out in misdirected anger and frustration at something that has nothing to do with what the real feeling is. We have got to understand that having feelings is fine. It's part of life. You're entitled to have those feelings. And you're also entitled to seek help. There are billions of people on this planet. If you talk to somebody and they want to make fun of you, goodbye. I don't need that vitriolic energy in my life. I only want people that love me and I love them and support them. Somebody once said, John, do you get along with your wife all the time? And I started laughing and said, look, I don't get along with myself all the time. So I can't expect to get along with my wife all the time. The difference is, is how you approach each other and communicate. You have to be willing to learn to communicate. You have to be willing to say, I'm okay. I just have this issue and I need to talk about it. If a therapist helps, do that. If writing helps, do that. If talking to your partner, do that. But come out and talk about your feelings. It's okay. I want to help direct people now to your platforms. I know you have johncallis.com, which is an extensive picture of your filmography and everything you've done. Where else can people find you or look your projects up? A couple of things you can do. You can go on Facebook. You can go to Amazon, type in John Callis. It shows all the books. And I can send you a link to the YouTube of the Christmas Village time-lapse and the 30-second spot that I did for this year. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, medium.com, which I could really use some followers on because it's a great platform. If you sign up and just follow me, you don't have to receive any emails. But if you want to keep up with some of the things I've written, I'm at the beginning now trying to get followers. 
Thank you so much for the information, the awareness, sometimes just knowing at some point that there are other people that have experienced similar things can help us report, reach out, and even begin that recovery stage, knowing there are tools and resources and ways beyond the depression. I just really appreciate you sharing your story of not only survival, but thriving too. Thank you for everything you've done for creators and victims and everyone alike. I deeply appreciate what you've contributed to the world. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I think it's important for people to come together and help each other. It's what the world should be about. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I had to take a breath, compose myself and assess the situation. As teachers, we are trained every year in active shooter trainings of how to protect our students from shooters. I think in that moment, it was more about checking myself and knowing what I needed to think clearly enough to develop a plan. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.